fabulous. It's so good to be back. If you were not here last week, then uh, you didn't know I came back last week, and I was sick for a couple weeks, and I'm so... It, it feels like, it might look like I'm better. I'm, I'm sort of better, but, you know, if I just fade away in the middle, we'll just go with it for a sec, and I'll probably come back. So, um, it was, uh, it's been a wild, wild ride, but I'm getting better, and I appreciate so much your prayers. So, my first prayer was my bedtime prayer. I don't know how many of you had the bedtime prayer as yours. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That's all I knew. So then I went through and prayed for the people that I liked the most in my life. Um, and so when God bless me, um, <laughs> I, didn't, I, never get cor- I never got corrected on that one. Mom, because she was sweeter to me. Dad, because he wasn't. And then my little sister, Rach. Uh, so me, mom, dad, and Rach, that was my first prayer. But but really, that was kind of the routine prayer, but really, and it was spurred on by my parents, but really my first personal prayer that I, I, I made regularly uh, was um, on days that I had tests in school. I don't know how many of you learned to pray. This is when my relationship with God really started. Uh, when I didn't study, I had this prayer, oh God, please help me. I didn't study, um, and I didn't prepare like I should have, but help me to pass. And then when I did study, then I had... Um, Dear Lord, please help me remember all the facts and information that I might do really well on this test so that I can go to a good school and get a good job. Amen. And those were really my first prayers. And maybe you too, like, learned how to pray under duress of, like, studying or something like that. Some of you are still in those prayers. Some of you are happy to be done with those prayers. But if we really, like, dissect that prayer, we'll just think about what, what we're asking when we pray that prayer. Um, let's just stop and think about it. God, come over into this part of my life, studying, test, school, that you're not really in. Come from over here to over here to help me with this part of my life. And then when I get an A or a B or a C or a D, but I pass, then I'm happy. But then often I think what we do is unconsciously, we put God back over here. We call it um, compartmentalizing. And, and we put, it's like, it's like a locker or a different area of our life, if you will. So we have these different lockers, these different compartments of our, our, our life. Um, and some of us, to some degree or another, live in these areas. So like we have a family locker. Um, or if, if, we're, if we live in a complex family situation, we might have a, a family set of lockers where we might be a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, and we have just different uh, family situations that we manage in, in depending on our extended family or our nuclear family. And, and family is often a really big component. It's often a really big locker, and it should be filled with hope, um, love, and joy, and yet oftentimes it's filled with like a loneliness. Um, it's often filled with brokenness or heartache and and sometimes um, we might even talk about our community, our faith community here, our church being like a family. And, and that's oftentimes a, a scary word to use because it just depends on what your definition of family is. And so what, when we say that, if we use that, when we use that, I just want to park there for a second and say, um, when we do that, we mean it in the best sense of the word. And we think that family should be an unconditional acceptance. And we think family should be a place where, where people believe the best about you. 
no matter what you've done, no matter the choices that you have made or are making, but they also, because they believe the best about you and they want the best for you, that they encourage you to be what God has and wants for you. And so if we use the, the word family or that we're a family, that's what we mean. So just wanted to pause there in, as we talk about the family compartment. I think we have a vocational locker um, or if we're a student, we have a, a student locker compartment. It's a place where we often spend a lot of our time. It's a place where we um, accomplish things. It's a place where we often meet somebody else's need, like a boss or a friend or a teacher. It's a place where we might meet our own needs. It's, it's usually a place where we often find um, some satisfaction or fulfillment, but, but it's a place of unconditional acceptance usually. Your company likes you when you do well, and they give you more money, or they give you promotion, or they give you recognition, and uh, the company doesn't like you when you don't do well. Uh, the teacher likes you when you do well, the teacher doesn't like you when you don't do well. And so it's, it's a place where we're not quite sure what exactly is going on. So we have a family locker, I think we have a vocational locker, we have a social or a recreational compartment. It's a place where we relax or play. Uh, it's a place where we can meet people. It, it might be a place where we feel most like ourselves, but, but not necessarily. It could be a place of anxiety or a place of stress, depending on the types of relationships that we manage there. Um, in today's world, we have a virtual locker, a virtual component, where we manage our online personality or our online personalities. You know, there, I have some friends who have like several sets of personalities, three different this part of me and this part of me and this part of me and they, they manage all those and then they manage those different relationships and this is when I'm feeling really angry. This is the part of me and then there's evil like person and then there's, oh, the nice person and then really, but it's a place where we have to manage a bunch of relationships. And I think for a lot of us, we have a spiritual component. We have a spiritual locker. We have a place that, that might be tied to a building. It might be tied to a church community. It might be tied to a small group of people if we're in a life group or, or something associated with a small group. It can and should be connected to God, but ironically, it's often not connected to God. And so it's, it becomes this situation that we manage. And maybe you have more compartments or more lockers than that, but but if you can go with me on that, um, whether it's the right way to live, I think some of us live in that way. And I think it's really easy to live that way in the suburbs. We go into this part of our life and, and work that out, and then we come out of it. We go into this part of our life, and we live that out. And each one of those lockers has a certain assumed set of responsibilities. It's um, the way we're supposed to interact with the people that are in that part of our life. And and if, if it was just that easy, maybe it would be okay. But the problem is the more lockers we have and, and the more separated they are, the more that we have to have a strong sense of self. We have to really understand who we are to be able to go in and out of each of those places in our life and be the same person. And, and depending on how strong our sense of who we are is, um, whether we're 13 or whether we're 30 or whether we're 60, um, the more 
relationships that we have to manage and the more areas that we have to go in, the more tempting it is to construct or build a certain person for this area and a certain person for this area that's a little different than that. Because I'll, I'll be honest, when I'm, with one, when I'm with my parents, I act a little bit different than when I'm with my wife. And then I might act a little bit different in my job. Because there's those unassumed, unspoken but assumed set of who I'm supposed to be or responsibilities there. And depending on, like I said, how we construct that, and the more we have to manage, the harder and harder it is to stay the same person. And so what happens is we live this compartmentalized or this complex and fragmented life where we're really just living pieces of a life, not really one life. So how does this relate to where we've been going? Well, first, if you can just allow me to think I'm on the right track, um, just ask yourself, like, okay, how fragmented is my life? How many different areas do I go in and out of that really don't overlap and where I'm really just a little bit different in each area? Whether it's family or work, or friends. And, and how... And where does God fit into those compartments? So how fragmented is your life? And how and where does God fit into that? Because we've been talking about this idea of, of all in, or this idea of when we say yes to something and jump into it, like really that's, that's like fierce follow-through. In, and it's really hard in our society because because oftentimes we're living these pieces of a life. No wonder we can't follow through on things because we have a piece over here and 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 we're really just living pieces of a life, not, not a full life. Well, where we've been at in the scriptures actually speaks to this idea of these pieces of a life. So we've been going through, and if you have a Bible, um, you can turn to Joshua chapter 5, Old Testament uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, chapter 5. Um, I was helping my third grader with her memorizing the books of the Bible because she's doing that over across the hall, and she's like, why do we have to know those, Dad? There's a table of contents. <laughs> Good point, but it's fun to learn. We'll sing a song about it. I won. I, won. I don't win very often. Um, so in Joshua, um, these people are in a new place. There are new people in a new place trying to establish themselves. And God has said, I'm going to give you this land. And they're like, okay, well, actually, they didn't believe him. So they had to wander around for a while. And now they've come back. And now they're actually camped in the land. They're sitting on the edge of the land. They're in a place called Gilgal. Joshua has to think as the, as the leader, um, do I want to be brave or do I want to be safe? And so we've talked about that. Um, Joshua sent some spies into the land to check it out. He's a military strategist. He's very smart. He was the, when the old leader, beloved, most of the time leader Moses, was in command, Joshua was like his right-hand guy, and Joshua was the commander of, of the army. And so um, from a, a very young age, he was really taken under a wing to be like um, an apprentice. And so now he's in command. So he's no slouch. So he sends spies into the land, and he has to, 
these spies have to decide if they're going to trust this woman who was a prostitute, um, who feared God or, or was in awe of God, and, or if they were going to not trust her. And they were brave, and they trusted her, and, and she helped them. And Joshua was brave enough to listen and obey God as they had to walk through this river that we talked about a few weeks ago. Step into the raging river, and then the water will stop. And they did. And now he's courageous enough to tell the people, like we talked about last week, to take up these stones um, of remembrance so you'll remember this miracle that I did. And so we had these stones up last week. And all along, these people are like actually getting it right. Where in the wilderness and, and before they got it wrong, but now they're in a new spot. They're sitting on the edge of this camp and they're like, okay, and I think they're asking, where does God fit into this? How is he going to make this happen? Do we, do we go and fight or do we wait? I mean, how exactly does God fit? And I think when we're living pieces of a life, we're trying to figure the same question out. How does God fit? How does God fit into this part of my life? How does God fit into this part? Or maybe we just have this spiritual component that we think God fits in like once a week when we, when we maybe come here. Or maybe God fits in when we pray, but if we're not praying, he's not there. Um, these people are asking some of the same questions that I think we're asking. So we pick up the story where they're camped out in Joshua 5 and, and they're waiting kind of for God or Joshua, their leader, to tell them what to do. They're, they might be thinking, should we go march into Jericho? Jericho's the biggest, closest town nearby. It's where when these people cross the river, all the people that were in like the fields and farming, all the people that heard about them crossing the river, they like freaked out and they ran to the city because the city has very big walls and could offer them protection. So all the people from the countryside ran into the city. They're all holed up there. They're kind of afraid. So do we march over there? Um, do we just go take over the rural farmhouses and, and kind of steal the plunder? Um, you know, most of our older, experienced soldiers um, died in the wilderness. So do we do some military training? You know, do we set up camps and practice our sword fighting and put on the armor and walk around? And, you know, that would actually, if, if I'm one of these guys, I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to practice. If God says we're going to take this land, then I need to work on my sword fighting. And, and that's what's questions that they might be asking. Now, Joshua, he's not, like I said, he's not sitting around going, oh, I don't know. Okay, what's next? Like, he's out with God. He's out praying and can, okay, God, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? And so if you go to the end of chapter, chapter 5 and verse 13, Joshua is out scouting the land. He's near the town of Jericho. He might be you know, far enough away to not be seen, but he's looking around and he's going, okay, I think this is the next place we're going to go. And how many men do we need to take it? And how prepared are they? I mean, he's kind of going through his mental, his tactical preparation. And in verse 13, we see that there's a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. And Joshua goes up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? Now, I don't know like, if Joshua had a, a whistle where many people could come or if he's got a shield or a sword at the time. When he's scouting this out, I would assume that he would be armed. But there's a, a, a man with a sword in his hand and Joshua must be somewhat confident. 
And he says, neither one. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now, I think Joshua does the right thing here. At this, he falls on his face and says, I'm at your command. What do you want your servant to do? And interestingly enough, the commander says, take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did what he was told. Take off your sandals. Now, sandals would offer protection for Joshua. Um, He could run away much faster from this man. Um, Take off your sandals. What? Why? Why that? I think that this was a way that Joshua could acknowledge God. This was a way that Joshua could say, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in a vulnerable situation here, and God, you're present. And I'm taking off my sandals because you asked me to, but I think that's a physical way that he could experience this spiritual reality of revering God. Take off your sandals. It's, it's a way to say, God, you're present, and I'm, I'm responding to you. This idea of the holy ground, you know, this, this promised land really wasn't, I mean, yes, it was, it was beautiful. Um, they call it a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a nice way to say good stuff. But, but it was filled with idolatry. It was filled with people worshiping other gods. It was filled with child sacrifice. It was filled with um, really immoral things going on there. So it wasn't that holy of a place. But yet the angel says it's holy ground. I think it's holy because God was present. Anywhere that God is becomes holy ground. Today, here, we're here. God's here. I believe he's here. So this is holy ground. Now, when we leave and Monday comes and there's like senior aerobics around the chairs, which is kind of fun, um, it's no longer holy ground unless God was present there. Then that senior aerobics could be holy ground. And it's this idea that, that if God is present everywhere, which we would say God is present everywhere, then everything would be sacred space. Everything would be holy ground. And if so, if everything is holy ground, then what's our response to that? If when I go to work, God is present there, then that's holy ground. If when I go to school and God is present there, that's holy ground. If when I go to my neighbors and just hang out and God is there, that's holy ground. That's sacred space. And I think what it means is it demands some kind of a response from us. It may not mean take off your shoes, but it might mean something. It might have some kind of response. And when you think about that, and you put it back to this idea of a compartmentalized life, a life filled with lockers of different places that I go in my life, then it completely shatters that. It completely busts it up because that would mean that there is no spiritual locker, that everything is sacred space, everything is spiritual. And when I walk into my work world, 
that's spiritual. And when I walk into my family, no matter which part of the family, whether it's the healthy part or the dysfunctional part, that, that's sacred space. And when I walk into my friends and in that situation, that's sacred too. And when I walk over into this part of my life, that's sacred space too. And God is present in all those situations. So there is no spiritual locker. It's all spiritual. And there's, a, there's some kind of a response there's some kind of an action that I think has to happen there if the spiritual really does permeate everything. So if you're, if you're not quite believing me, then let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. So now we're in Joshua chapter 5, um, beginning. We'll start in verse 2. Um, verse 1 just says, the people were all scared and they ran away. But verse 2 says, um, at that time the Lord tells Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the second generation of the Israelites. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the entire male population of Israel at Gibeath Hieraloth. And Joshua had to circumcise them because the men who were old enough to fight in battle when Israel had left Egypt had died in the wilderness. Um, circumcision. Now, now, I can think of a lot of ways to respond to God in a spiritual way. Um, to say that, that I'm in a good relationship with you, I can think of praying, I can think of confessing, I can think of worshiping, I can think of reading the Bible, I can think of fasting, which is just abstaining from something, usually food, in order to pray more effectively. These are all ways that I can have a physical, tangible response to God that says, yes, God, I'm, I'm in with you. But circumcision, like the little cutting and I, I'm... I, Again, I can think of a lot of different things that would be good, but that would not be on my list of spiritual preparation. Okay? And if you think about, if you think about what God is saying to Joshua, just in a practical sense, remember Joshua is their leader, but he's also a military genius, and they're camped out on the edge of a land that's not theirs, where the people have lots of armies, and he's just literally, literally crippled his entire army. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think about that at the time, but okay. The entire army. The entire army. Verse 8, after all the males have been circumcised, they rested in camp until they were healed. There is so much more that's going on there than just, oh, they rested in camp until they were healed. I mean, they're sitting there, what are they thinking? Like, come on, God, couldn't we get a tattoo or an earring or uh, like have a secret handshake that would like tell us that we're in with you? Why? Why this? We think, first of all, before I answer that question, like this is a test of faith. Remember when we talked last week about these stones where, where God stopped the water and he performed a miracle and all these people walked across and they were supposed to take these stones and they were supposed to put them up to remind them that God is living and active and working um, and, and does miracles. And so they did. And now they're staring at those stones and they're like, okay, now I'm going to test you. And so, so I want you to do this. And it makes no sense Tactically, it makes no sense militarily for them to cripple their entire force because now anybody could come and attack them and really do some pretty big damage. Um, and so they've got to be tested here. But, but circumcision for them is like this mark. It's this sign of this covenant promise between God and the, the person who started 
the nation that these people became. Abraham was the guy where all these people had come from. And he was the father of this nation. And he and God had made a promise to each other. They'd made a covenant together. And so God picked circumcision as that sign, that mark. And that said, you're in this family. And so they did. And that's why the next verse in verse 9 says, Today I've rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. And so that place has been called Gilgal to roll back. But, but days later, the Israelites camped at Gilgal, next verse, on the plains of Jericho, and they celebrated the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the first month. Okay? In order to partake in Passover, these people had to be circumcised. Like they had to have the mark, they had to be the covenant people to go through Passover. And so this idea of rolling away says, you know, like, you know, you were in Egypt and you didn't trust me and we were wandering in the wilderness and today I've rolled that away. Today you're, you're in the family. You've shown you're in the family. You've gone through this physical thing to show that you're spiritually responding, that you're spiritually here, that God is acknowledged and worshipped. And now we're going to partake of this meal that signifies this thing from 40 years ago that you've done once at the mountain when we got the commandments. But really for the other 39 years, has not happened. And it's something that they were supposed to celebrate every year, that they were supposed to remember. And so what happened at Passover was, was the last miracle in Egypt. Um, in Egypt, they, they were slaves, and so God sent them through a number of miracles, a number of plagues, and the last one was this death plague. And in order to be spared in the death plague, what they had to do is they had to take a year-old perfect lamb and they had to kill it, they had to cook it, they had to eat it, they had to take some of the blood and they had to spread it over the doorposts on the sides and on the top. And then when this death angel came to Egypt, all of Egypt, it would look and it would, if it would see the blood, it would pass over that house. If it didn't see the blood, it would then kill the firstborn son in that family, no matter if it was a slave family or if it was the Pharaoh's family. Israel had to do this, and in, in a miraculous way, all, of that, all the people that participated in the Passover, putting on the blood, were spared. This substitute blood, this substitute lamb, was up on the doorposts, and they passed over. And so the next verses are really significant, because look how many times it says day. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, some of the unleavened bread and the roasted grain, and the manna stopped the day The day after they ate this food from the land, and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but they ate the produce of the land. Again, Manna was like this thing called, what is it? It's kind of this white, flaky substance that's very bland, and they ate it every day for 40 years. Now, I can't even get my kids to like eat oatmeal two days in a row. Um, I don't even like to eat things two days in a row. I like, if we're going to have leftovers, I'm like, can we just skip a day and then come back? I just, two days in a row, I just can't stand two days in a row. 40 years of day in a row, of day in a row, of day in a row. This manna, although it sustained them, although it was God's provision, was really just a reminder that they were stuck in this wilderness because they didn't believe God. And now this ends. Again, it's a new sign. It's a new place that they're in. Again, they've rolled away that reproach. So, so 
sorry. Um, so the point is, to all that, the manna, the circumcision, the Passover, is that, that being in a right place with God, being in a right relationship with God, is more than just going to my spiritual compartment and praying, or going to my spiritual compartment and reading my Bible. Being in a right relationship with God is kind of a total involvement of who I am. That's why this story, even though it has great movement and is a great story if you like read it all the way through, you know, they come in, be, be courageous and go to the city, scout it out, meet this woman who's going to spare you, like lowers you down on the, through the wall and escapes and then they go and then they cross this huge river and then like a whole conversation on circumcision. It's so important to the story to say it's all holy ground. Like, stop and acknowledge God. And so the military strategist who's out, like, looking for different weaknesses in the city and, and wondering where to go next, he says, take off your shoes. Circumcise the people. Celebrate this feast because it's really about spiritually being in a right place with me than it is about all those other things. So what's our response? I mean, we don't celebrate Passover. We could, but we don't. Um, we don't because, because Jesus came and fulfilled Passover. Um, but, and, and you can, you can circumcise your boys or your men. Um, we, don't, we don't need to. You could. But Jesus fulfilled all those religious obligations. All those things where, where they had set up these rules about being religious, Jesus fulfilled all those things. And so, are they necessary? Are they needed? Now, historically, the church has celebrated two sacraments, communion and baptism. And, um, and as a new church, we're still trying to figure out, like, when we do those, how often we do those. Um, and so if you want to put in your opinion on, on what's meaningful and why, we, we'd listen. Um, for baptism, part of our history and heritage is that we practice baby dedication with the prayer that one day that child will come to understand who Christ is and follow Christ and receive Christ and then be baptized as a sign of that, that decision. We also practice infant baptism, where we baptize that infant, showing that God's grace has come before that child, um, not as a saving grace, but as a sign that, that, that God is present and active and working in our lives before we accept him. And then one day that child, too, can accept Christ, and we can celebrate that moment. And so if you've trusted Jesus with your life, if you said, yes, I want Jesus to be my Lord, I want him to be my leader, I want him to be my Savior— and you haven't been baptized, and you have questions about it, write it on that communication card. Okay, I want to talk to a pastor about baptism. Or what does that exactly mean? I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, for communion, uh, if, like I said, if, if, if a f- certain frequency, um, you know, some, some of us come from a Lutheran or a Catholic background where, where, man, it's not church unless you do communion every week. Well, talk about why that's meaningful. I'd love, really, we'd love to hear why that's meaningful to you. Um, if you're like, well, no, that's, that's a little too much. Maybe like every other week or once a month. Or it's, it's not so much your opinion that I'm interested in, but it is about like why that would be significant. 
So, so today we celebrate communion in much the same way the Israelites celebrated Passover. For these people, it was kind of a first time. It was this new place with this new fruits and this new bounty and a new people and a new land exploring where, exploring a new land and remembering where God has worked. And so before we get to communion, uh, really there's, there's this kind of reflection that we should do. And it's, it, it really comes back to this idea of do you divide your life, not just into compartments, but into sacred versus secular? And is there anything in your life that, that really you need to talk to God about because of that division between the sacred and the secular before we go to communion? So the worship band is going to come up and um, play a song, and as they do, I just encourage you to take that time to reflect on where in my life do I divide the sacred and the secular? What do I need to confess? How do I need to to say, today I'm going to live differently. And then we'll have communion together. So um, let me pray. Um, God, thank you for a strange story um, about circumcision and an old feast for a people that, that didn't understand. Um, God, to really teach us that it is about, that everything is sacred. Uh, forgive us in those times in our life when when we refuse to acknowledge the sacredness, the space that we're in, um, especially because you're with us all the time, because your Holy Spirit lives in us, that you are present and everything can be spiritual. So speak to us now, Holy Spirit, about, about ways that we miss that. Um, let us hear your forgiveness and hear your love today. In Jesus' name, amen.